Welcome to Two Lit Mamas, a kid-lit podcast for parents, teachers, and writers. I'm Heather Kaufman-Peters. I'm the mother of one teenage boy. I'm a preschool teacher and a writer. And I'm Margie Ozemet. I'm the mom of two boys, middle school teacher and a writer. Welcome to the fourth episode of Two Lit Mamas. Yay, four episodes. Oh my gosh, we're rocking. All right, so what's new over there? Well, my little boys started flying this week. Yeah, I'm traumatized by this. The fact that you sent me a picture of an airplane that your son was in control of was like too much for me. We still have training wheels on the bike over here. I'm just saying. My little boy genius has been flying on flight simulators since he was like five years old. So his first time in the plane, the teacher let him land and take off again, which they never do with a first time flyer because he had already had him do like all these banking turns, like 45 degree turns. And and that's like a good practice, but it's like pulls some force and G-force. Look at you throwing out the big word, G-force. Hey, girl. Hey. I know. And he did six of them in a row or something until he thought he was going to puke. And so then the guy let him land because he did such a great job. Everyone keeps asking me, how do you feel about your son flying? And I feel like all of his experience and everything's kind of been leading up to this moment. He's so excited about it that I'm fine with it. Yeah, right. Like it just like wears off on you. Like he's so excited that you have to be okay with it. It is nerve wracking though. Yeah. Can you just tell him not to teach his little cousins out here in Massachusetts how to do those things? Because I don't know if there's enough volume for me to let my babies up there. I promise. And then and then eventually we're all going to be like calling me like, hey, um, could you come pick me up in Boston and take me straight over to the Cape real quick? That's awesome. Your life is so much more exciting than mine. Well, that's the most exciting thing that's happened during quarantine for us. Yeah, nothing else is happening here. I'm talking to squirrels. Okay, so I do have a snake problem, right? And P.S., this morning I saw two snakes on the driveway and I'm pretty sure that I pooped my pants, but I can't be 100% certain. <laughs> But because I'm like walking along, doing my miles, going over to do my walk in the cemetery. And then I saw the snake at the bottom of my driveway. I'm like, nope, nope, nobody, nope, nope. I'll just walk up and down the driveway. My driveway is, is like a tenth of a mile long. It's massive. I wasn't going to cross the snake to go anywhere else. I just walked up and down the driveway 20 times. How long do they stay in the same place? Do they lay on your driveway for heat? Well, that one stayed there a really long time. So the other day, one of them came out from under the front step of our house. And my little guy was like, oh my God, mom. Oh my God. And we all of course like are out the window looking at the snake it's like a foot long right and my husband's like I can kill I can kill and I was like okay you say this every time and then you run and scream the other way p.s my husband was also a commando in the Turkish army but he is absolutely like 12 year old girl terrified of snakes so he comes back and he's like okay this time I can kill what else and my other son gives him this huge rock and he misses (laughs) and he goes no I hit I hit I know I hit and my older son's like, Papa, you didn't even get close. And he's like, I can try again. And then I have to take the other, the little guy to the eye doctor. We're sitting there and I get this text message from my husband. And he's like, thank God I not killed that snake. You know, it says on Google, their wife can come back and find me. I go, what? If you kill snake, their spouse come for vengeance. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're Googling, but all right. <laughs> God, that's awesome. That sounds like a really good middle school story. That poor man. The boys were ragging on him the other day about his bad English. And the little one's like, it's not, I be back, Baba. It's, I will be back. Get it right. Work on your English. And he's like, he's six with a speech impediment, for God's sakes. Like, who's he to talk about it? 
Oh. And the older one is always like, mom, what is he saying? Like, what is he trying to say? It's not like he's just new to America. He's been here a really long time. Aww. So I think my older son probably has a few amazing like tales over beer in him. I would love to be his friend in college, right? Because <laughs> he'll be like, let me tell you a few stories about my dad. <laughs> Where should I begin? Those are the best kind. So anyway, that's what <laughs> we're just fighting snakes. Snakes on a plane. It all comes full circle there. <laughs> all right. Should we do this? All right. Let's get started. I'm going to start us off with my book. It was called A Song Below Water by Bethany C. Morrow. It's about two play sisters. They call themselves Tavia and Effie, who are living together with Tavia's parents in an alternative Portland, Oregon, where mythical creatures live with human beings. They're living together because Effie's grandparents thought it would be good for them, but we don't know exactly why. So throughout the book, the chapters alternate between Tavia's first-person perspective and Effie's first-person POV. Tavia is a siren who is keeping her identity a secret for her own safety. Because in this world, which is not too different from our world, sirens who are predominantly Black women are often persecuted and killed because the world is afraid of their powers, even though they haven't ever used their powers to hurt anyone. And this goes back basically to the civil rights movement. So there, it's all a lot of fear, racism, misogyny all rolled into one. Effie also has a secret power or identity, but we she doesn't know what it is. And so and we so the reader doesn't know what it is because everything's first person. And this causes her and her sister a lot of concern. It kind of adds to the mystery of the story because they think there might be a clue at the Renaissance Fair where Effie plays a mermaid. And that was something that she did with her mother before her mother passed away. And um, she thinks that maybe the sisters think that maybe the mother left Effie a clue to who she is. So in some ways, a song below water is a normal story about high school girls who worry about things like their hair and boys and mean girls and parents who don't understand them and really watching out and standing up for each other. But on a higher level, I mean, I really felt like this book was Salem Witch Trials, Black Lives Matter, and Civil Rights Movement all rolled into one magical girl power story. Yes. It kind of took me on an emotional roller coaster ride. So bear with me. It's really heavy. heavy. Yeah. So bear with me while I kind of get through some of this about it, talking about it, because I was sort of all over the place from heartbroken to way patriotic, which is a weird reaction, I know, but I'll explain. So um, this is a fantasy novel with African mythology and girls with twists, not golden locks. And I have to say, I didn't realize how boring children's fantasy and mythology had become until I read this book because it really spoke to me. It made me feel patriotic, which I know sounds strange, but let me get on my soapbox for a minute here. The thing I've always loved most about our country is that it is a melting pot. You can travel this country and get a taste of the whole, what the whole world is like. And it makes my heart so sad to think that there is a segment of our country that is actively wants to bury that idea to whitewash it and to male wash it for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. our big, diverse, beautiful country. And I guess that's how it's been since the beginning. If you really think about it, of course, our founders never meant for freedom to include women or minorities. 
but that doesn't mean we can't correct that. Our founders weren't perfect, but the ideals they held were meant to grow and adjust as our country grew and adjusted, and I think it's time for change. I know this is a lot to just talk about a children's book, but it's not. It's I mean, that's where some of the best the best points are made. I agree. And hello. What about the children will lead us? I know. Honestly, and they are going to lead us and they're not turning back. There is no taking it back now. They're amazing. It's because Gen X made these sassy little nuggets. That's they are why. amazing kids. And because of them, diversity and multiculturalism and pluralism is just not going to be relegated to underground anymore. I mean, it's just not going back. I think it's at the heart of American idealism. And as far as I'm concerned, it's at the heart of what it means to be an American. Multiculturalism, diversity, and this idea of pluralism. And there's more of one way to being in the world. Everybody came from somewhere. So... Anyway, I think that I highly recommend teachers and librarians carry A Song Below Water and other books, just no matter the demographics of their area. Because when I think about the fact that I didn't have books like this to read when I was in middle school, it kind of makes me angry. Yeah. Because this story is so important. And not only that, it just makes me angry because all the princesses in the stories were like me. And how boring is that? They were all blonde and white. It's boring. Right. PSs of the little fat kid with dark hair didn't work for me either, but you know, on a whole nother level. <laughs> I, I'm just like so sad that I missed out on this amazing other, other American stories. You know, American stories are, they're so diverse. Well, I think there are so many American stories, but I think that there's so many freaking stories that, don't need to just be written by a bunch of old white men right. or old white women. You know what I mean? And finally, my biggest complaint for this book, the story, it's so amazing. The story is amazing. What needs to be told is amazing. The way it is told is amazing. I feel like whoever edited this book did such a disservice to Mrs. Miss Morrow, the, the writer. If a good editor got their hands on this book, the little tiny tweaks with world building that are missing that make it hard to follow, like... The, the little bits of information that should be explained that aren't in the right spot. So then you lose interest in a part where you shouldn't lose interest because you're confused. Good editor would have fixed that. It wasn't up to the writer at this point. Like this, the, what she has is so much going on that I, I do not fault her at all for the problems that are in the book. I fault the editing and I fault the rush to like get it out. I don't know. When was this out? Do you know? Like it's a 2020 release. I think. It just came out. Oh, June 2020. Yeah. And it's very timely. And it, especially because it puts you basically in the heart of a Black Lives Protest type yeah. of movement. There's so many amazing modern current things that they're discussing in this book. But I agree. The things that we're talking about here, it just needed a little bit better editing is because there's a lot of hints of things that are happening in the beginning that we don't really get answers to until much later in the book. But there are things that once I had the answer to it, I felt so much closer to the characters, which I really wish there was something specifically about Tavi. I wish I had known right up front because I felt like that was really important to who she is as a person. And I would have felt much more connected to her. And I mean, I get some of it was a mystery because it is first person. So the girls don't know a lot about themselves because their parents have kept things from them. It is first person, but it's also switching. Like it's also, and you can't catch that. Like it's hard to catch that. I think that the voices aren't different enough. Sometimes I'd be like, who, who's talking? I don't like which one, of, who's reading this chapter? Right. Again, it's an editing thing. I think it, 
you know, a tweak. It's a tweak that needed to happen. The chapters are the division between the POV. I think that definitely helped because the girls do sound so much alike. Yeah. I do think Tavio is a little bit more angsty than Effie. And Effie's chapters are a little bit easier to read because of that. I agree. So they do have a somewhat different voice, but they are really close sisters and they get each other so well that it is hard to kind of follow between the two of them. It, it, it does help that usually whatever chapter you're in, the girl mentions the other one's name a lot. Yeah, I, it was a good hint. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree. That was a, a challenge, especially at the beginning when you're trying to get your roots in the story, because it is set in a real city with real problems that we have in modern society, yeah. but it really is an alternative world. It has all the mythical creatures living in it and and things that pertain only to those creatures. If you um, were going to give this book to somebody, who'd you give it to? What age group? Okay, I'm definitely upper middle grade on this one for sure. Just because of the reading level, I think was required to follow along, at the, especially at the beginning, because it's really yeah, hard. It's slow. It takes a while to get into it. Yeah. The sentence structure, because it is in first person, it's very casual as if you're talking. I think young readers would have a really hard time following the sentence structures. I'm definitely putting it in upper middle grade, not because there's anything in it that I think a middle schooler couldn't handle, but because more because of the reading level. The reading level. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. I'd say eighth and ninth graders would really love it. I wonder if upper high school, upper young adult, it might not be enough. It might not dig deep enough. So I think I would like, yeah, seven, eight, nine, upper, upper middle grade, not quite YA. It was a great pick. You know, it was like such an out of the blue pick. It hadn't been on my radar yet. I hadn't seen it anywhere when you sent it. I got it from my favorite little bookstore had posted online about it. Kids Inc. I found it through that. There's so many great places to find books right now. If you just dig, you just kind of look for, all you have to do is say the word and you can find something. There's so many great books out right now. Just like looking for books for the, our next uh, podcast, even today, I was like, oh my God, it's like such a smorgasbord. There's so many new authors, you know, authors of color, authors of different genders, authors of different uh, orientations. There's just so much awesome representation happening right now. And the characters, my God, it's so nice. It's so wonderful to see a good choice. Some of these stories that are coming out are still sort of like typical middle grade tropes, but because the characters are so new to us, because they come from these different backgrounds, it makes it so fascinating, even if it is similar tropes. Like if you get tired of reading, you know, a lot of the same middle grade stories. I taught middle school in different states, different. I taught it in Turkey. I, I, I worked with middle schoolers in Africa. They're all the same. I mean, I just remember sitting there in the mid, I was in the middle of Rwanda and I'm like working with this middle school teacher on an exchange program. And the kid was like picking at the girl in front of him and she was like smacking him and, and her and her girlfriends are cackling and all this. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't even have any clue what actually happened, but this is no different than anything that goes on in my classroom in America every day. Right. The middle school stories are the middle school stories. It's just uh, all about where and when and how you handle it. It's nice to finally see that it's just not white kids that have the middle school story. Exactly. Right? And they don't have to try to picture themselves in stories because they're there now. Yeah, it's been a great movement to happen in the last few years. And I hope it keeps going more and more. All right. So our second book is Marcus Vega Doesn't Speak Spanish by Pablo Cartella. I hope I didn't kill his name. No hablo espanol. Margie Ozimet does not speak Spanish either. So I, I apologize. I love the Spanish in this book, by the way. It made me so happy. It's awesome. Yeah. 
So this book is, it's a totally different world. So let's just like change hats hundred percent. This is about a boy who grew up in Springfield, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Philadelphia, right between media, Pennsylvania and Wynwood. And it's where I used to go get my hair done. P.S. Cause it was, you know, right outside of Philadelphia. And it's just a very working class, little, nice little town, but it's very white. He has a, his white mother, his father was Puerto Rican. And he hasn't seen his father in the last 10 years. His mom works baggage claim and gate agent at the Philadelphia airport. And that leaves him in charge of his brother who has Down syndrome. Brother Charlie is about 11. They don't really tell you, but you get there. There's like a three-year gap. Marcus is 14 and he is six foot and like 200 pounds, 180 pounds. Sorry. He's just like this giant overgrown little bubba, you know, and his size is he uses it to his advantage and everyone thinks he's a bully, but he's not a bully. Instead, what he does is uses his size to keep the bullies away. So the little scrawny sixth graders will pay him like 10 bucks a week to walk into school so that nobody picks on them. And it reminds me, I had a kid just like this in school. His name was Fernando and he used to do the same thing. And there was one little boy, Luke, and he was the scrawniest little boy. And they are to this day still my, my sons and Luke. And the first day of third grade, when he met Fernando, he was like, I mean, Fernando at that time was like man-sized already. And he was like, you shall be my best friend. And now they're still best friends. And Luke still doesn't reach his elbow. But, you know, like he knew that like this, the little scrawny Jewish kid was going to get picked on. So I might as well pick the giant Fernando. And they were awesome. And that's exactly what I kept thinking of in this book. Because this kid has a heart of a heart of gold. And all he wants to do is sort of like take care of everybody. He takes care of his brother, Charlie, who, like I said, has Down syndrome. And he has been mainstreamed. It was very kind of, you get the gist that it was very... It was like a hostile mainstreaming people. A lot of people didn't want the kid with Down syndrome in their kids class, but they got him in. And Marcus is in the same middle school. So he's the protector and he protects his mom. And he uses all, this is the sweetest part. He uses all the money he makes protecting the sixth graders and all these other little side jobs he's got. He uses it to, to put, his mom has like a cookie jar cash is what she calls it or cookie monster cash. And they put it in the cookie jar. And whenever they have a problem, they take money out of it. And he doesn't, he doesn't tell her, but all the money he makes, he puts in the cookie jar for her. And so she doesn't know he's doing it. She just knows that the money, you know, she thinks maybe she put more money in than she thought or whatever. She's like, you can't help but love this kid within two seconds of reading the book. So, but then something happens at school and he gets in a fight and he gets labeled a bully. But in fact, this boy called his brother the R word and, um, and he punched him and everybody knows it except for the boy's mother, who's a total Karen. She's such a Karen. And so she gets him expelled. I also like how they don't say the R word. They just yes. say the R they word. They said the, the R word, literally R word. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. And everybody knows what happened and, but he still gets expelled. So his mother decides that she's going to cash in her free fl- plane tickets and just get them out of town for a little bit. Even though they can't afford it, they're going to do it. She can see the family going off the rails because she's trying to keep them on track, which God knows we all been there. We love her. Um, and as a single mother, I can't imagine, you know. Uh, so they take off and they go to Puerto Rico because they can stay with Marcus's uncle. We find out that Melanie, his mom, used to, when she first married his father, they lived in Puerto Rico. And that's where Marcus was born. And they lived with this uncle, uh, Ernesto, I think. He took them in. He has a hostel. And he, you know, so they could go stay there. And they get to Puerto Rico. And he decides before they leave that all he wants to do is find his father. Because he thinks that that's the problem. That if he found his father, then his father would help take care of things. Money would be easier. They wouldn't have all these problems. He thinks in a beautiful, wonderful, naive little boy way that 
you know, it's just a miscommunication. That's why his father's never contacted them in 10 years. That's why his father's never sent any money. <laughs> Everybody sees the writing on the wall, but Marcus, that's what's just so beautiful. And it's a wonderful, once they get there, it's this like sort of wonderful love letter to Puerto Rico. It, it talks about the beauty of old San Juan. They go all over the countryside. They go to farms. They go to visit. It would be, I guess it would be like Marcus's great aunt. They kind of say, yeah, 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 we'll help you find your father, but let's go meet some family. And he meets all this family and the both of the boys meet all this family they never met before in Puerto Rico. And he realizes that he does not speak Spanish. And that's a problem because everybody else is always speaking Spanish around him. The cool thing about the book, which I think is really brilliant, is the writer leaves it all in Spanish, just like it's regular dialogue. And then Marcus kind of is like, uh, uh, trying to figure out what they said. And it's, it's like exactly what happens when someone is speaking another language around you. You're like, I feel like I should know what's happening here. Oh, I really should have learned Spanish. This is important to me, but I shouldn't. And I didn't. And now I'm trying to figure out what they're saying. Every so often his mom will translate, but usually, you know, like somebody will translate it for him if it's important, but sometimes they don't translate it word for word. And sometimes you just didn't need to know, you know, if you don't know Spanish, then you didn't need to know. It's unapologetic about the Spanish language in the book. Yeah, it's just, it's, mm -hmm. this is the culture. This is what it is. He finds the answers he's looking for. I'm not going to say any more than that. And it is not what he thought. 100% not what he thought. Even to me, I was like, well, now I didn't really expect that to happen. But that was really great. Okay, cool. I like that. And he always takes care of his brother. And you have this really great feeling at the end that something has opened up. And this kid now understands that he is, yes, he does live in America. But he is also a bicultural kid. And raising bicultural kids is really hard because no matter what, your one language is going to be pr primary. One country is going to be primary. We don't bounce back and forth between Turkey anymore. We don't bounce back and forth between Turkish and English in our house like we used to as much unless I <laughs> want to say mean things about my children <laughs> to their father. And then I'm like, see, you should have kept your Turkish going. But I think it's inevitable that one culture takes over. And I think that this is a great example. And I keep telling my son, I'm like, you're reading this. You're going to read this. You're going to love this book. I said, you, this book is going to resonate so much with you because it's just about who am I? And it's okay to be of two worlds and that it's really okay to kind of embrace that and understand that the other side of you, that other culture and that other language and that other person that is also really important too. So I just love this book. It's like a per, and the thing that I think that was most important, there was no murder. There was no mayhem. There was no violence. There was no big, like, Oh, it's a car crash. Now nothing happens except just this kid figuring out who he is. And that is so important. So I feel like that's what was so magical about the book is that like nothing really happens except that he figures out who he is. And that's like the biggest climax any book could have, you know? So I, I loved it. I loved this book so much. I just, I mean, I just, mm -hmm. I can't say enough about it. I just think, and being a boy mom, I think that being a boy mom and knowing that you go through that phase, like from like 11 to God knows how long, maybe like 52, where mm -hmm. they just don't talk. Yes. And you're supposed to try to figure out how to fix them when they won't talk. You, you could tell there's, you definitely could see a side of it that I think moms need to see. <laughs> so what did you think? I love the mom in this story because she doesn't just get angry. You know, a single mom who works all the time, she could have just blown up at him and been like, what the heck are you doing at the one inciting yeah. incident that happened at the school? And I love that she doesn't, that she knows him enough. Like she knows his heart that he's not a bad kid and it's okay. And instead she wants to regroup. And I love her go team go thing, how she treats them yeah. like a team. And I think that's really sweet. You also get to see 
how she's sad about having to put so much responsibility on the main character because she wishes he was just a kid and he didn't have to take care of his brother or her or worry about things that they have to worry about. I just love the mom too. You can tell that this was written by a mama's boy. P.S. And God bless the mama's boys. I'm raising them. I hope I I married one. I hope that for the rest of the life, the mama's boys prevail because it was such a love story to this mom. You know, it really is. And she definitely was not free of flaws, and she owned them. And I thought that was epic. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I was talking about that YA fantasy addicts group I'm a part of on Facebook. Then they had this discussion the other day where someone had posted about they were so sick of reading books where the parents are just get mad at the teenagers and act like their behavior, like they're just being bratty or that they're just being, oh, they're just teenagers. They're hormonal or they're this. Instead of the parents taking some ownership in the children's behavior and trying to understand why are they behaving this way? Person who brought it up was saying, you know, it took her a long time to understand because her parents just treat her like, oh, you're just a teenager. That's why you're acting out. And she didn't realize until she was adult. No, she was acting out because of their abusive behavior, but they just wrote it off. Sometimes you find in YA where, and, and, and it goes both ways. It's like, well, the parents are just mean for no reason, or the kids are just hormonal for no reason. And it's like, no, even when I'm dealing with my preschoolers, if they're acting out, there is a reason. A lot of times it's because they're hungry or they're tired or they just need a break, like they're overwhelmed by what's going on around them. And teenagers are the same way. There are reasons they're acting out. And of course, the hormones may amplify it <laughs> or make it seem like yeah. it's a bigger problem than what it is. But again, they're dealing with a lot of pro- these problems for the first time. And so it does seem yeah. bigger until you know you get older and you have some perspective and it happens to more than once, you know? And I feel like this relationship between the mom and her boys is so real. It's honest, you know, she messes up sometimes, they mess up sometimes, but they love each other and they got, they've got each other's backs. And I, I just really appreciated that. And the other thing I 100% loved about this story is the Spanish, because I love Spanish. I learned Spanish in college and I went to, spent time in Costa Rica and I just, I, I loved how the Spanish is in there. And it's not like, oh, here, let me translate it now for you people. It's just in there and it's who their characters are. They'll speak Spanglish a lot, which I love because that's so real that happens a lot. I had a Spanish speaking roommate for a long time and he would do that all the time. He would drop be speaking Spanish Spanglish when he was even just talking to his siblings because they grew up in Texas. And so they just mix their Spanish and their English when they talk. And it made me want to go to Puerto Rico. <laughs> I mean, it really did. Funny that you should say that. This morning I was doing some research on it and I looked up the classification and they had, they classified it as historical fiction. Really? Because it was written, it was released in 2018. Um, but it was written, obviously written before 2018, because that old Puerto Rico doesn't exist anymore. Oh, after, after the, hurricane. the hurricane. And I felt like that was really interesting and kind of, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. But I would still say it's realistic fiction. It was just set For sure. at a time when this is what it looked like there. And the other thing is just like the connection of the brothers. The brotherly love was just so intense. It actually made me think of your boys a lot. Yeah, because there's the little guy who needs some help and the big one who's going to do anything for him. Even the little one could be a giant turd sometimes. Yeah, that's my kids. <laughs> and that's how these boys were in this book too. So it was great. Again, Marcus Vega does, doesn't speak Spanish by Pablo Patea. I would highly recommend it. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with our Pixie. (laughs) 
Welcome back. I forgot to say right before we took that break, uh, Marcus Vega does not speak or doesn't, excuse me, doesn't speak Spanish, has been optioned for a major motion picture. So um, let's hope that comes out. I would love to watch it. That's so exciting. It is really exciting. I, I will see that one in a heartbeat. Hello. Okay. So uh, this week's pick six, we are each picking three of our favorite books in any genre or topic that had an adaptation that perhaps didn't quite work or really didn't work. Shall we say that? So we'll call this our pick six of skip the movie. The book was way better. Perfect. All right. So Heather, what's your first one? What's your first pick on skip the movie? The book was better. (laughs) For my first one, it's actually a YA, but I think it might've been worked for like upper middle grade. This is the first time I remember freaking out during a movie And it was The Fifth Wave. The book was by Rick Yancey. And it's a series. But they made a movie that kind of combined some stuff. But it was the first movie where I couldn't stop saying, it wasn't like that in the book. The book explains it so much better. There's so much more to it in the book. And my husband and son were so annoyed with me. They almost wanted to just stop watching the movie because I could not shut up. You can't though. You feel like so, you're feeling so superior to you because you're like, well, I obviously know what it's supposed to be like. I read the book. I know. And I kept like interrupting scenes because I'm like, well, if you read the book, you feel way more connected. Like you get what the scene's about. <laughs> right. I'm like, no, the scene means more than you guys are thinking. And they're just like, they both just like turn their heads at me like, what the heck? Shut up. Right. And then, okay. So in the second movie, I would have to say is The Giver. I never saw the movie. I love the book so much. I was afraid to see the movie. That was pretty much what I was thinking too. The book is by Lois Lowry, who I love. And so I was the same way. I was super nervous about watching this movie because I knew they couldn't recreate the feelings that go along with this world that she created. And I was right. (laughs) I didn't hate the movie, but I felt like it just lacked heart. It was very like kind of clinical, like a very shallow version of what was going on. That's how I felt about it. It's such a great book though. And PS, you have like, it's literally like, is it a hundred pages of that? I mean, it's a tiny book. Like you could have made so much magic. Hello, what were you thinking? You got the general idea, of course, but yeah. Anyway, okay, so what did, you, what did you what did you pick? All right, well, my first one, and I'm sure that like, this is like start the start the fan hate mail, I don't care, <laughs> but um, my first one is definitely the adaptation of Wonder. God love you, Julia Roberts. You did a bad one on that one by RJ Palacino. Anyway, everybody knows the book Wonder. Everybody knows about Augie. Everybody knows everything about it. But okay, I'm a parent of a, of a child with a craniofacial disorder and hemiofacial microsoma. We belong to a lot of groups about kids that have Golden Heart, Treacher Collins, and all kinds of other facial deformities, facial abnormalities, and things like that. And when this book came out, it was like, everybody was like, oh my God, you're talking about us. You're talking about us, my kid, my kid, especially because Treacher Collins syndrome is, it, that's what he has, is it was wonderful. It was magical to fi- like, talk about representation. Here we go. Here's somebody whose face doesn't work. This is like us, you know? I remember how excited you were it about this It was huge. Book. And then you pick some cute little kid with a perfect face and decide to slap a few pieces of latex on him. And that's your representation. Right. No, girl, no. It was terrible. Uh, our whole community was kind of like, Oh, come on. Come on. And the fact that I I know that, I don't know, maybe if I'm like rich and famous and somebody's like, here, you're a struggling writer. Let me make your book into a multi-million dollar movie and um, you don't get any say in it. Maybe that's what happens. I don't know. But when she wrote that book, she did such an amazing thing for that group of people. 
But then to let it go to film with just a regular kid with a couple Band-Aids on was so offensive. If you're traditionally published, usually the publishing house has all your rights. So I'm sure she probably had zero say in it. Well, that pretty much explains why that would happen. So that was definitely, that will always be like my giant stinker in the face of all great books that were ruined by their film. And the second one, (laughs) your girl, your favorite one, That Wrinkle in Time. Oh, girl, Wrinkle in Time that was just, that just came out by Madeline, Madeline Langle. I can't. Cannot talk today. I can't say anyone's last name. I'm just gonna it's gonna like share Madonna. I'm just gonna call everybody <laughs> their first name now. It was. I mean, it just it just proves that just because I'm Oprah and I have a bazillion dollars to throw at something doesn't mean it's gonna be good. The costumes were stunning. P.S. P.S. The wigs, amaze. I mean, you could have put three drag queens in there and it would have been awesome. But that was the most confusing movie. I mean, the book is not not without confusion, P.S., you know, like it's it's a confusing book for a lot of people that aren't as nerdy as yourself. <laughs> like, like me. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a Tesseract. I'm so confused. But oh, yeah, I have to say, aside from the visuals. I'm going to have to stop you on this one and disagree. Did you like it? Yes. Did you really? Okay. So I was worried about this movie much like I was The Giver because... Again, there's so much going on in this movie. I don't know how you represent it on the screen. But with that said, I feel like this movie got trashed mostly because Oprah was in it. It got bad ratings before it even came out. Like prejudged. Yeah, but okay. See, Reese Witherspoon was also in this movie, who I adore. See, that's why you're defending this because you just, you're a Reese fangirl. Yes, that's restraining order number two. Yeah, right. I do love her very much, but I was not disappointed with it. I liked what they tried to do with it. I really liked the main character. I thought she was fantastic. Oh, she was awesome. That little girl was amazing. Even though what they did with the witches was not at all what my little childhood fantasy was of them. I picture them as three old dotty, like British style kind of women. (laughs) But I still loved what they tried to do. I thought it was very magical and very woman powering and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't as down on it as other people. And I tried to keep a really open mind about it because I felt like, Oprah was sort of getting a raw deal on it. So yeah, I might have had more negative things to say about it had I not already sort of felt defensive about it before I even watched it. You're just an Oprah fan. You're a member of the book club. It's okay. I am a bit of an Oprah fan and a Reese Witherspoon fan and a Mindy Kaling fan too. I'm like, I love her because she's like a chubby, awkward dork. My, it's like a dream come true. She's my soul sister. I mean, if you had three fairy godmothers, those would be your fairy godmothers. Let's face it. They're awesome. Uh, I would pick drag queens, but that's just me. <laughs> I would have picked fairy drag queens. That would be heaven. (laughs) So, and then Chris Pine is the dad. I mean, come on. There was a lot of stuff that wasn't like how I pictured it, but I really appreciated that they tried to do something more modern with it, which I thought was kind of, was pretty cool. Anyway, that's our, my argument against ripping on a wrinkle in time, but I think you're entitled to your opinion. So you can go proceed, (laughs) proceed to trash it. All right. So what's your last pick? Okay. For my last pick, um, I reached out to my awesome Facebook group that I talked about earlier, the Why Fantasy Addicts, and I asked them what book they loved when they were 12 or 13 but hated the movie. And I thought at first I felt kind of bad for going negative with that group, but they are so thoughtful and they didn't take it negative at all. They were very honest about what they thought. And first of all, most of them agreed that all movies fall short of the books, which you can't, you Word. can't argue. I yeah. agree. hundred percent. Can't argue with that. 100%. But the general consensus for most of them was Artemis Fowl. Yeah. A lot of them said they like walked out in the movie 20 minutes in. 
Oh, yeah. And a lot of them said they chose not to watch it. And full disclosure, I have not seen it either. But anyway, I thought that was interesting because there were about 50 posts for that one. And then yours, the next one that you had. Well, because I feel like every other nerd in the universe, like Percy Jackson, I mean, Rick, Rick Rudin, what were you thinking? Like, why did you like, why did you sign off of this? It's again, like it was bad. Mm -hmm. And then apparently I didn't make it through the next one. It was, a. I guess what happened was he signed a three movie deal. And it was The Lightning Thief and then the next two that followed it. But The Lightning Thief was bad. First of all, like Percy Jackson went from being to 12 into being like a mustachioed 16-year-old. Like, what happened? How did he age so fast? And then it became like a YA love story kind of thing instead of like this awesome little kid who's like scrappy. And then the other two, apparently like the second one was so bad and it lost so much money that they just scrapped it and didn't do the third one. Now, apparently it's all coming back again. They're going to try again because... I love those books. I mean, the books are really great. My kid does not like him. He's like, I just can't get into them. And I'm like, apparently you were adopted or something because you're not my soul. I don't understand. That's like my son refuses to read Harry Potter. How dare you? I love mythology. And I think mythology is really cool and interesting to me. And the way that that comes out to play in Percy Jackson, I felt was phenomenal. And then I saw the movie and I'm like, did you even read the book? Sometimes you read, watch the movie and you're like, did you, did you read the book? Like Mr. Lemoncello's library, same thing. It was an awesome, amazing book. And then you're like, watch the movie and you're like, I'm sorry, did you read it? It's like when you sit through a book report in class and somebody didn't read the book and you did. And you're like, wait a minute. That's not what happened. That never happened. Yeah. Anyway, so what's next on our list? So next time, please join us. And we're going to be talking about our favorite middle grade series. And it won't be the ones you expect. (laughs) No Wimpy Kid. No Wimpy Kid. No Harry Potter. No Captain Underpants. There's so many right now. There are so many. I can't wait. Can't wait to hear what you get. I'm excited. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Two Lit Mamas. We really appreciate your support. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at www.twolitmamas.com, where you can sign up for our blog. We're also on Facebook under Two Lit Mamas. Spell out the two, please. This is a grammar lesson, not the number two. This is the letter two. And if you don't use the right two, 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 T-W-O, if you don't use the right one, then you're never going to find us. And that's your bad. And you can also find us under two, again, spell it out, T-W-O, Lit Mamas, on the Insta, because that's where all the cool kids are, except for Heather, because she doesn't go <laughs> I don't. And on Instagram, we're at Two Lit Mamas Podcast. Okay. And if you want to join us twice a month for Kid Lit Discussions, please subscribe to our podcast through any of the places where you get your podcasts. We really appreciate your support. Thank you. Have a nice day. Cheers.